the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter. Today we're up to chapter 4, verses 7 uh, to 11. Peter's been uh, preparing people for suffering and for persecution, and uh, now he's going to give some very practical instructions about what to do in light of the Lord's uh, soon coming. So the text is in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> the first time Marty went away on a, a women's retreat for the whole weekend and our kids were little was a memorable thing. Um, uh, they were little and I was thinking, you know, um, I got to get through this, got to survive this, got to keep every, you know, everybody in one piece and by the time she gets back Sunday afternoon, we'll be great. So my strategy to, to do this was Unless it's really destructive or really terrible, you got a blank check. And do whatever you want to. You want to eat that? Go ahead. Eat some more. So, so the boys, like dogs, sniffed that out early on and knew that because they love to go and be at, you know, whenever I would go buy gas at a gas station or something like that, they loved looking at like, all those gross meat products, you know like Slim Jims and beef jerky and all that stuff. And I'm like, you guys want that? Let's get it all. Let's just clean the whole rack off. Let's just take it home. You know what? We're going to eat all of that. You want ice cream? Bring it. We're going to have a great weekend. So, so, so we did that. And then on that Saturday night, I'm like, they're, they're like, hey, Dad, there's this movie on TV called Mars Attacks. Let's watch that. That looks like a comedy. That looks like that's a lot of fun. Well, they sing country music and Martians' heads explode in their, in their space helmets. And there's a famous actress who gets the head of a chihuahua put on her body and that kind of stuff, which is kind of funny, actually, but not to four-year-olds. And so... <laughs> so, like, by the time Sunday morning rolls around, I'm like oh, I got to get to work. And this house is a wreck. And she's coming home. What is she going to do when she gets here and she sees the mess we've made of this house? It was terrifying. It was horrible. So, you know, I'm like, and they're sick. They're, you know, unable to help. And so, scrap, 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 scrap. I'm I'm like calling her. I'm like, hey, y'all want to go take a long brunch on your way home? Take your time. Everything's great here. Let me get this place picked up. Let me get these dishes washed. Let me get this, you know, the bathrooms cleaned up because they were a wreck. So um, when we're preparing for somebody to come, when we're preparing for somebody to, to show up, sometimes it causes panic and sometimes it causes us to, to, to know, not know what to do. When Peter says here, look, 
Now, the end of all things is near. What he's saying is Jesus is coming. And there's some very practical things you should be doing uh, uh, and some practical things that the church needs to be about in preparation for that. And so that's the whole point of this text. Now, um, one of the things that's fascinating about this is, is to think about that. If, if, you, if you woke up this morning, and you will never know this, but if you woke up this morning and God revealed to you that Jesus was coming back today at 8 o'clock tonight, what would you do? What would you do? Famously, uh, uh, the German, German reformer Martin Luther said that he would go out and plant a tree. Interesting, right? Uh, and so what he's saying here is, look, all the big things that need to happen in God's calendar and in his timing uh, for the return of the Lord has happened. So get ready. So Peter looks about him and he sees a church that's persecuted. He sees a lot of suffering. I would venture to guess that he thinks his time is limited, that he will soon be martyred. And so as a result of this, he's saying, look, you know, the Lord is going to bring the curtain down on this soon. And so in light of that, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to be about. And so he gives in this text uh, four commands and then at the end, the goal of all that. And so what I want to do this morning is kind, of, is, is kind of reverse those, because I want us to look at the goal first and then look at uh, the four uh, commands. So look at the end of the text, because what he says here at the end of the text is, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the goal in all of this activity is not to get our houses in order or not to get cleaned up or not to, to, to do certain things in, in just for the sake of doing them, it is for the glory of God. It is for Jesus Christ. It is because Jesus Christ has come, because he has lived, he's died, he's risen again, because he's ascended into heaven, and he is returning that we are to be about these things. So we are certain as we do these things, we are certain as we hear these commands, we are absolutely certain and assured of the Lord's love and his care and his provision for his people. And you're going to see that through these commands, that the Lord is for us. And so because he is for us, he will come again. And, and in preparation of that, these are the things that, that, we can, can, that we can be about so that the glory of God will be clearer to us and clearer to the people who watch us. Now, next slide, please, Megan. One, one of the things that um, happens about this when we hear about the glory of God, it's, it's one of those things, sometimes it's very confusing. What glorifies God? Now, uh, one of the ways to think about this and the, and the way to kind of unpack this is to think about the two catechisms that we use most often around here, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Catechism. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question and answer number one, begins with, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. You know that. We, we say it here all the time. The, the, the Westminster Catechism question and answer, which is probably the most famous of them all, is what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I've actually heard sermons in our presbytery that the Westminster is superior to the Heidelberg, neither is superior to the other, but that Westminster is superior because it begins with the glory of God. Well, that's a great thing. 
But I would submit to you that you cannot glorify God and enjoy him forever unless you're absolutely certain that you belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. These things have to go together. They have to work together. Otherwise, what good is the gospel? If the gospel is not working in and through us, if the, the certainty of, of God's goodness and his care, if the certainty of the atoning, work of sacri- uh, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not for us, then any attempts at glorifying God are just going to be things about our flesh, religious flesh. You know, we do these things without any kind of sense of God's initiative towards us first. And so, so both of these things are important, and both of these things are in this text. We are certain of the love of Jesus Christ for us. We are certain of the love of God for us. And so as a result of that, what we're about in these four commands helps us to understand and see and demonstrate exactly what it is for God to be glorified. That you, you, to be self-controlled is to understand that that is a fruit of the Spirit, that that comes to us from believing the gospel, that love is preeminent. And we understand that love is preeminent because we have been loved first. We practice hospitality to strangers because when we were a stranger, Jesus made a place for us at his table and that he gives us gifts. Who gave us gifts? We didn't generate the gifts that we use, right? So it's important for us to see that goal first and foremost. Now, the four commands. Megan, next, next uh, slide. So the first one he says is to be self-controlled and sober-minded so you can pray. It is, it's important for us to understand that what this means is as, as you hear the Bible, as you read it, as you hear the gospel and you believe it, and as you look at the world as it is, there is a temptation often to panic. Because it's clear, things are not the way they're supposed to be. The world does not function the way it should. Bad things happen. Horrible things happen. Horrible people are at at work in the world. And so as you think about this, you think, oh man, look at this. The world is a tough place. It is a hard place. And so what he says here is, listen, when you look at the world, right, uh, and, and particularly as these people are going to experience persecution and difficulty, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers so that you can pray. Now, one of the things that happens to us is, is we look at the world and we panic. Or if we don't panic, we figure out this is hard. I am struggling. I am suffering. And so I will deal with the pain and the struggle and the suffering by medicating myself with, with alcohol or with sensuality or, or with, with things. And so what he says there is, listen, the world is hard. Look at it as it is. See it for the broken marvel that the world is. See your life for the broken marvel it is and understand through the lens of the gospel, that Jesus is a redeemer, and so you pray. 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 When you see the world as a broken and a hard place, pray. When you experience that brokenness and that hardness, and you don't panic, (laughs) don't panic. (laughs) We love to panic. Sometimes we make panic even look like righteousness. Don't you care about this? What are we going to do? Right? He says to pray. Or we're like, this is so hard. You know, I'm just going to withdraw and comfort myself with this 
food or this drink or this image or, or this, this number or this coat or this car or this vacation, right? The world is hard. These people knew it was hard, and they knew that the Lord was, was, was coming, and they knew that, uh, that they faced certain persecution. Many of them were in danger because they were Christians, and yet what he says is pray. You see Jesus doing this all the time. When, when Jesus is getting ready to be tempted after his 40 days in the wilderness, what does he do in those 40 days in the wilderness? He prays. What is Jesus doing in the garden before he goes to the cross? He prays. And so, <clears throat> we, um, we don't, <laughs> I, I, I find it so ironic, you know, that this morning we've heard about three or four opportunities for us to pray, which is really counter to the way we typically do things here, because we don't respond often here as a congregation to opportunities to pray, but we do respond to do something. And we do respond often, in, in, to our credit, to do good things. And we respond often to give. There is not a more generous group of people that I know of anywhere than this congregation. Those are great things. Those are manifestations to me of the power of the gospel and the spirit of God in our congregation. Let me say to you, don't panic. Don't medicate. Pray. Now, at the early service, I said this at the end, and I think people were already just, you know, happy daylight savings time day. We're just, oh, get me out of here. I got to go back to bed. Um, when you hear these four commands, they are corporate. Don't walk out of here thinking, gee, you know, I need to pray more. Walk out of here think, thinking, God, make us a praying church, right? All of these things are the things that the church does together. This is, this is a corporate thing. This is something... Now, you can ask, you know, what do you want me to do about this? How do I participate in this? Because I'm a part of this body. But these things are all corporate uh, things, right? Secondly, what he says, after he says to pray, is he says, above all, above all, above all, most important, the most important, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, right? So one of the, one of the things that we have to see about this is, is that love for the believer and love for the church is not a virtue. It is the preeminent virtue. It is the sign that the Spirit of God has set you free, has redeemed, that, that he is at work in you, pressing into you the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We love. Uh, I'm preparing a group of, of deacon candidates to be um, interviewed in, in a couple of weeks by our elders. And I was quizzing them on Wednesday night, you know, it makes them nervous because they never know what I'm going to ask and that kind of stuff. And so I asked one of the guys, I, I was up to the section in the uh, Confession of Faith on the Ten Commandments, and I said, what's the law of God? I just want him to say the Ten Commandments. Of course he didn't say that. He said, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And I thought, well, if any elder tells you that's the wrong answer, that he was looking for the Ten Commandments, you can take his seat. <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, you're exactly right, right? Because cause the, the, the fact of, of the matter is, that's exactly the, 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 the hallmark of Jesus Christ. God loves so. God loved the world so much, right? That is, when, when, if, if you want to know anything about God, the place to start is there, right? Now, is, is with his love. And so it's the preeminent issue for the Christian, right? And so, and he says, let this world be earnest. And it's earnest because it forgives. It covers a multitude of sins. Now, that whole, that verse about love covering a multitude of sins is such a hard one for us because, because what it makes us think is somebody somewhere is going to sin against me and they're going to get away with it. <laughs> that, that the gospel says, I have to let that go. And, 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 and sometimes you're like, well, maybe loving them is not letting it go. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Loving them means not letting it go. Let me love you by correcting you now, right? And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's very appropriate, right? But, but the fact is, the, 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 the thrust here, the, the emphasis here is love earnestly, and, and the way this loving earnestly is demonstrated is by allowing that love to cover a multitude of sins that I'm quick to forgive and as practical as I can make this is, you need to ask yourself, are you giving people the benefit of the doubt? Now, this is a funny thing. Because people can sin against me and do some pretty terrible things against me, and I, and I can think about it, and I'm like, that is not a big deal. But other people can do lesser things against me, and I get incensed. And you know why I get incensed? Because I know why they did it. They didn't tell me. They didn't demonstrate it, but I know. I know. I know why you did that. I know exactly what's going on. I know, I know the deepest, darkest, ugliest part of your soul, and you did that to spite me. Or you did that to uh, get my goat. You, you did that to press my buttons, right? That's not giving the benefit of the doubt. Right? Right? The benefit of the doubt is they sinned against me. I could interact with them about this and correct it. But you know what? I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. I used to, when I was younger, I used to say, sins of weakness, let them go. Sins of willfulness, drill them. Um, but you know what? I, I don't know. I, you just got to have wisdom. You just got to have wisdom to know what kind of sins to let go and what kind of sins not to let go. But I do know this, that the onus in this text as we await the Lord's coming is that what would be true of our community life together is that love covers a multitude of sins. And we give one another, we're quick to pray and we're quick to give one another the benefit of the doubt. Next slide, please, Megan. I came across a couple of quotes about this that I think are, are really helpful. This first one is one of the reasons why you won't give people the benefit of the doubt is because to think that only faultless people are worthwhile. 
of whom I am one, right? When, when we begin to th think about faultless people, right? To think that only faultless people are worthwhile seems like an incredible exclusion of almost everything or everybody of deep value in the human saga. Sometimes I can't believe the narrowness that has been attributed to God in terms of what he would approve and disapprove. And then if you do have to say something to someone, the only obligation I recognize is to say what I believe to be true and to say it with kindness. I believe that is how a Christian conversation should proceed. Moms, dads, roommates, small group members. I want to tell you what's true and I want to say it with kindness. And, and here's the thing, uh, the obligation to say something with kindness, the only, the only true way you can know whether you said something with kindness is if the person on the receiving end thinks you said it with kindness. Rats. Next slide. Thirdly, uh, he wants us to practice hospitality. Now, one of the things that we tend to think about hospitality is, you know what, um, <coughs> it's, um, it's, it's Sunday uh, and we're all going to go to brunch after church, and that's, that's hospitality, or it's Sunday and we're going to have you over to our house for a meal, and that's good. Those things, those things are great, and, and we need to do more of that. Uh, the more we can be together, uh, the better it is. This is something else. Almost universally in the New Testament, when, when the, the word is practice hospitality, it is to people you don't know. It is to people that you might not even like. It is to people that maybe the only thing you have in common with them is that you're both believers. Because that's the, new, that's the onus of the New Testament, right? And so, so one of the, that's, that's why he says here that you practice hospitality without grumbling, without grumbling. Well, why would you grumble? Well, you, you would grumble because people might show up and stay too long. Why would you grumble? They might stay, they might come to your house and eat the best piece of meat or eat other things. You, you might grumble because they're not picking up on the social cues. It's time for them to go. Marty, let's, let's go to bed so these people can leave. <laughs> All right? No, in, in a church that is struggling with persecution, in a, a church that is full of poor people, and a church that is mobile, it is essential that your door be open, that when someone shows up on your doorstep and says, you don't know me, but I too am a follower of Christ, can I have a place at your table and a place to sleep under your roof? You're under obligation by the gospel to give them that. One time when, when Marty and her roommates, she had, a, she had a Kenyan roommate who was like uh, one of the leading theologians in Kenya now and a girl, a friend from Alabama. Uh, they had run across uh, a homeless lady who, 
who showed up on their doorstep and said that she was friends with somebody else there at the seminary and that he had said that she and her daughter could spend the night in their house. And so they're like, okay. And so they bring him in, they set him up, and they think, huh, we ought to, we ought to look into this. And so they call the fella up and say, this lady showed up with her daughter and says she knows you. And he's like, I don't know her. I met her out front on the street and she needed some food and so I took her to the grocery store and bought her some food and sent her on her way. So these three girls, women, young women, huddle in the bedroom, lock the door and think, She's got here to kill us. <laughs> she's she's going to do this terrible, terrible thing to us. And of course, the uh, uh, the woman from Kenya is like, "What if she's an angel?" And the Bible says we're entertaining angels unawares, and that didn't go anywhere with the American girls. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I think we need to keep the door locked. And so they're like. Well, what we need to do is we need to call somebody and let them know that if we don't come to class in the morning to send the police because we're dead over here in our house, right? That is hospitality without grumbling. It's risky. Jesus Christ died when you were his enemy to make a place for you at his table, right? Um, it's a painful duty and you might be tempted to grumble because people honestly might take advantage of your hospitality. <clears throat> Fourthly, he says, to use your gifts. Uh, in fact, he goes on to an extended thing here. He says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, there's a couple of things to note about this. He says to use your gifts. Um, the, the overwhelming witness of the New Testament is that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and he, he dispatched his spirit, he poured his spirit out on the, the church, one of the things that the spirit did for the church is he gave people in the church gifts. And so there's a whole lot of gifts that are, that are distributed among the people in the church, and they're different gifts. And what he, what's interesting to me about the way he talks about, he says here, he, he gives two categories of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts in this text. And I, what I think he's getting at is a comprehensive perspective on gifts, those that are public and those that are private. And he doesn't make a distinction between them, whether your gift is something that everybody sees or whether your gift is something that is behind the scenes. It's not your gift. You're the steward of that gift. God gave it to you, and you use it to serve other people. Now, uh, people will often say, I'm, I'm on a search for my gifts. It's not that hard. What are you good at? <laughs> what are you good at? What, is, what are you good at that you could employ to serve other people in the body of Christ? It's that simple. Maybe you can fix things. 
Maybe you can sit with the sick. Maybe you can stand up and teach a class of first graders. Maybe you can set tables. Maybe you can cook. Maybe, you know, that's not important. It's something that you're good at that can be used to serve the body of Christ, whether it's public or private, employ yourself in that. Um, and to see it as something that's not even your own, but it is something that God has given you that you pour out for the sake of others. Uh, once we were, we were preparing for a party or something, and, and um, Ann Long was helping me. And <clears throat> Ann, Ann is one of the most gifted people I know. She can teach, she can speak, she is super organized, and, and, and she, she keeps me on track, literally, she keeps me on track. She'll say to me, now, now have you thought about when you're going to do this next, and have you thought about when you're going to do this next? I mean, she's, she's really terrific at that. Well, we were trying to set these tables up, and she was trying to arrange these flowers, and Anne can't arrange flowers. She just can't. And she's getting frustrated doing it because she wanted to serve me. She wanted to help me. And, and, I, and Marty was coming over, and I said, listen, this is not your gift. Marty knows how to arrange flowers. She's good at it, and she likes it, and she does it as a ministry to people to beautify this, to help people. You don't need to worry about that. You need to go back to the desk and tell me what it is I'm supposed to do next. <laughs> that, that's your gift. That, that is how you can serve instead of sitting here and feeling bad about the fact that you can't get these tulips to sit up straight in this vase, right? <laughs> Big deal, you know? If everybody in the church knows how to arrange flowers, how am I going to get my work done? <laughs> There's not going to be anybody to tell me what to do next, right? So, but it, it but if, if there's nobody to uh, uh, arrange flowers, then there's never going to be any beauty in the church either, right? And so, so the whole point of that is you need to figure out what it is that God has given you to do, whether it's public or private, and you, do it, you need to employ it for his glory because Jesus Christ, one of the ways that he loves you is he's given you something to do. He's given you a gift to exercise. He's given you a thing to steward that's not even your own that you use for his glory to build others up for their sake, right? And that's, these, that, that's why he says these things to us. So, so here's the thing, right? So what we do is we pray. What we do is we, we, we love by uh, 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 giving each other the benefit of the doubt, we practice hospitality, especially with strangers, and we figure out whatever it is that we're pretty good at that can be used to build up the kingdom of God, and we employ it. As a congregation, if we're about those four things, if, that's what, if that is what is kind of driving our understanding of the gospel and what we spend our time and energy on in anticipation of Jesus' return, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. Because God gets glory as we believe the gospel and are busy about these four things. So let's ask him to make that true of us as a congregation, as a body. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you today that you love the church. We thank you that you love your people. And we thank you that you have given instruction about how we can live our lives uh, waiting and in anticipation of your arrival. And so I pray for us today that you would help us, uh, that you would give us confidence in your love and your care. Pray that you would, as you do that, that you would make our default not panic, uh, but prayer. I pray that you would help us to be quick to forgive and to allow uh, love to cover a multitude of sins. I pray as well that you would help us to know how to show hospitality to strangers, to welcome uh, those who are our brothers and sisters that we don't know. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would help us to discover the things that we're good at that you've given us to do um, for uh, your glory and for the help uh, of the folks uh, in our community. Lord, uh, I pray that you would help us to uh, not uh, scramble and clamor after bigger things, uh, but to be willing uh, to trust you uh, with this as our life while we wait for you to return. Lord Jesus, return quickly and uh, uh, deliver us. Uh, bring us out of the land of the dying to the eternity of the living. And so uh, while we wait, by your spirit, cause us to trust your love and to be busy about your priorities. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.